Davenport and I'm a junior at the College of Charleston. My name is Natalie Payton. I'm a senior at the College of Charleston. So HERE stands for Holocaust Education, Awareness, and Remembrance. And when we talk about education and remembrance, we're really talking about and bringing into focus awareness of the Holocaust and the intricacies of it and what comes from remembering and what comes from educating others. Not necessarily to the extent that you would from, like, say, getting your PhD in Holocaust history, but what comes from, say, a 30-minute episode about a small town in Poland or on one person's experience of survival. Here started a couple of years ago by a student with the intent of bringing Holocaust education to college campuses, more specifically to the College of Charleston's campus. And... Natalie and I are working to make what we know and what we're learning more accessible to people rather than just those who show up to our meetings. We hope you enjoy our podcast and of course if you have any comments or questions you can find our contact information in the episode notes. So Natalie why are you interested in joining here as a group? I became interested in joining here from the moment that my dear friend Leah told me she was going to be restarting it. Immediately found the idea interesting because I do think that Holocaust histories do need to be communicated and accessible to the public, especially in easy formats for people who aren't in academia. I really like that because I think that so much of what we hear about the Holocaust comes from media like fiction books, TV shows. Here's podcast. We'll essentially be going into a variety of different topics. Um, We hope to maybe do movies, maybe talking about um, like anti-Semitism on college campuses. One of my friends is working on research right now that I think would be really interesting to talk about. And then of course, chatting with Dr. Chad Gibbs. Hello. Good to join you for your first episode. We hope to have you for many more. Great. Your history of the group, I think we can add a little bit to that. I think it was Samantha Kranz who founded here. Shout out to Samantha, who then went on to do great work with the Charleston Jewish Federation in continuing um, Holocaust education within the high school Mm -hmm. level. She was their Remember Program Associate until recently, uh, as she is working hard on her uh, chiropractic degree and moved on to other things, uh, but is still very deeply involved with Holocaust awareness and education in her own area and in Charleston specifically. Um, so you're kind of picking up the baton uh, from her and the beginning of the organization there. And I would really thought that the idea of making here into a podcast instead of a uh, student organization with kind of what is its function going to be? Making it into a podcast is a great idea, so I'm happy to help. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started on today's topic? Sure. Uh, Well, I am College of Charleston's Holocaust historian. I am uh, director of the Zucker Goldberg Center for Holocaust Studies and an assistant professor in our Jewish Studies program. I've been here for, uh, beginning in my third year now, um, graduated with my PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2021, uh, where I focused on resistance at Treblinka. Uh, and I'll, I'm, of course, working on turning 
the work that I began there into my first book. So uh, stay tuned for an incredibly long time, most likely, until that is done. Uh, but that's my, my wider work is on resistance during the Holocaust. Uh, so that's the thing that always interests me. What is the story of resistance? How do people react? Um, pushing back against that, that idea that some students quite honestly and without judgment bring into the room the question that they really want to ask is, and I know that it offends many of us, but we have to, we have to take and understand where it comes from. It comes from a genuine position of not having been told differently. Students will come into a Holocaust class wondering why didn't they resist. And my biggest priority is always showing them absolutely they did in every way possible and at every turn um, from just holding each other up to actually picking up weapons when possible and burning something down. There was no point during the Holocaust from 1933 or even ni before 1933 in resisting the Nazis as a movement uh, all the way to 1945 in which there was no resistance. It was always present in varying degrees. Those degrees only varied according to what was possible for those people. So uh, that's my big message uh, and I understand that a lot of your interests in what you might pursue in podcast episodes go toward that sort of thing and um, especially as it goes toward remembering people, because one of my ideas is that resistance doesn't end at 1945. If the fifth category of what creates, what makes a genocide in the UN definition is erasure of the crime, then all work that pushes back against the idea of erasure of that crime is therefore, in my eyes, resistance. So you can even resist from a podcast studio, perhaps. So, for our first episode, we weren't really sure what to do. We knew we wanted to do an intro to here, and we knew we wanted to introduce y'all to Dr. Gibbs. So, in talking to him about what this episode would be, we sort of decided, why not focus on something that I'm working with Dr. Gibbs on, mm -hmm. along with a friend and another professor at the Jewish Studies Center at CFC. And that is the small town of Kalashin, Poland. All right, indeed. So let me give a credit to all the folks that we're working with on this one. First off, Professor Ashley Walters, uh, down the hall from me, who is uh, also director of the Perlstein Lipov Center for Southern Jewish Culture. Of which I am a research assistant for. Indeed. Uh, so Ashley and I are working on uh, some partnered up research in the, the Jews of Kaloshin in their lives in the city where they were born if that is, uh, we're talking about the people who were born in Kaloshin and moved to the United States. And also, um, my part of it would be the Holocaust history of that little town, or you could say shtetl, because it was a majority Jewish village or town. Uh, shtetl is a term that uh, a lot of people will get really pedantic about debating, but basically... I think I wouldn't step on any toes if I define that as a pre-war, pre-World War II uh, city or town, small town in Eastern Europe, uh, generally in the Slavic areas of Europe, Poland, Russia, Russia for the most part, that is, uh, where the population was mostly Jewish. And it's a market town. Um, and it would be uh, largely Yiddish-speaking, if not entirely Yiddish-speaking. 
Uh, Kalashin was one of those. Had a, t- a population of about 10,000 before World War II, uh, of which over 6,000 of those people were Jewish. So you've got a majority Jewish population in that area. Um, one thing that I've noticed when I go to a place that was once a shtetl uh, is that the former synagogue will be the building that sits on the town square instead of the church, kind of giving you the uh, what was more important or who had the population gravity of that town. So Kalashin was like that too, uh, except that today the main square has shifted and is now close to a church, and the synagogue, of course, no longer exists, uh, having been destroyed uh, kind of twice over, once by the Nazis and then once by uh, the new communist government after the war. Dr. Gibbs, I hear you recently went to Kalashin. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that choice was and what you found there? Sure. So I got the opportunity. Uh, let me stress that uh, Professor Walters and I's project on Kalashin is really new. Uh, this is very much research in progress kind of project with so much more work to do. So I got the opportunity to go to Kalashin for just one whole day is all. It was tacked on to a a trip that I took for a different reason. I was helping the National World War II Museum uh, film for a classroom documentary. And uh, since they were already taking me to Poland, I just tacked on an extra day and went out to Kalashin. Really, I'm going to I'm going to tell you about that trip, but uh, I just want anyone who listens to this to know I only know enough to be slightly dangerous. So I went to Kalashin kind of wanted to see the land where where what I know took place, though, if we listen to those videos that I took while I was there, uh, one thing that I can tease already is that I I didn't even know. Uh, things that I, na- I well, let me rec- let me correct myself. Some things that I said even just then, uh, I already know aren't aren't correct. So I learned I learned more even uh, afterwards. Uh, just just very much work in progress. So I went there and I knew that there was a memorial at the site of the former Jewish cemetery, which uh, quite sadly was also the place of a mass shooting. Um, so I went and looked at that site. Um, I was very interested as a Holocaust historian in how that day of the mass shooting may have played out. Uh, so I tried to walk the ground of that event. I think I was successful in that. Some of the things that I say, uh, in the videos aren't quite correct about what was, what happened where, as I learned later on. Um, but I did get a feel for how very close to town that shooting took place uh, and how everyone had to have known exactly what took place. This is not a took Jews out into the forest and, and no one saw them again sort of instance, which I think is maybe the shorthand for how that phase of the Holocaust went. This was intimate. It was close to town. Um, pictures that I took that day, you can both see the memorial that's in that field and the roofs of buildings uh, that aren't at all far away. Uh. In addition to what he's talking about, we will um, post the videos that he took and the pictures that he took and sent to us in our in the link that we will talk about hopefully at the end. So um, we knew that we knew uh, when we went there, there's a phase of the Holocaust 
and its very beginning, um, what I usually call it in my classes is the earliest phase of the Holocaust directed um, against Jews in a strictly lethal fashion. So Nazi Germany has made the decision that what they're going to do to Jewish populations of Europe is not, is not going to be forced emigration or just social death, as Marion Kaplan put it, but they're going to actually pursue a policy of genocide. And the first phase of that is uh, what Father Patrick Dubois has, has powerfully named the, the Holocaust by bullets. Uh, and in that phase, as many as uh, Father Dubois now believes it to be closer to two million uh, lives were lost in uh, Nazi mass shootings, where uh, Einsatzgruppen, that's special killing units, um, or their associates, and that could be the German army itself, uh, SS formations, local auxiliaries, um, just plain local anti-Semites often involved, uh, would show up in a town, could be a shtetl like the one we were talking about, uh, and gather up the local Jewish community and march them out to a predetermined location. Uh, and this is where I was kind of trying to put some nuance into things, uh, as, as you point out this good explanation for what I was talking about there. Um, it's often kind of the shorthand that oh, they were marched out into a forest and maybe locals didn't see this, they were taken somewhere there'd be less witnesses. Um, the reality in Kalushin is just that they were taken to the nearest open field, which was actually the Jewish cemetery. Uh, there were two, two Jewish cemeteries in Kalushin, the old and the new. Um, the old one is, was small. Uh, it is now the location of City Hall. The new one is still at least an open field. Uh, whatever stones were there are long gone. And there is a copse of trees there, just a grove of trees, uh, where we believe that there could be as many of us as a thousand people buried uh, that would have been victims of that mass shooting. There's also um, the belief that a different part of that cemetery along a road to its northern border uh, has as many as about another 300 individuals buried there. Um, basically, probably uh, murdered all close to each other chronologically, uh, but buried in two different parts of a roughly 300-yard, uh, about three football, three American football fields in size, this, this whole area. And it, when you're in it, you can see the whole town. There's a major sort of highway that's called Warsaw Street, uh, in, and it has that name because it's the street that would take you to Warsaw. Um, well-named. It's nearby. People might have been going by in their uh, cars or horse carts or whatever conveyance they had at the time and, and seen what was going on. Um, long story short, the, the impression being this was not at all secretive. Or if anyone had tended or thought that it would be secretive in this location, they were really poorly planned. Um, I think that in reality, though, what it shows us is that this was a brutal a brutal face-to-face -face phase of the Holocaust that has maybe less to do with this whole idea of secrecy that has been too long advanced by, by different um, students of the Holocaust. So now we're going to get into those videos that you sent, that you took, um, and then hopefully we'll have a, a neat little discussion about sure. them. So this is Kalushin, 
in the new cemetery, which is near the highway that existed at the time. You can see the Three Keys Memorial there. Back over in this direction, there is the main memorial. And I am standing in a small depression in the grove of trees that may be the mass grave, the larger of possibly two mass graves. Okay, so looking back at this video now, um, what what do you know now? Yeah. Yeah. So I do, I do know uh, what we what I understand so far is still that there were two mass graves. I still believe that spot where I was standing to be the larger of the two. Uh, what I don't know is is kind of um, maybe more dangerous on this video. Um, not trying to misspeak for anyone who may know bit some pieces of the history of Kalushin, especially if um, Charleston locals with family connections to that time listen uh, to your podcast. Uh, what I would want to say is that I will be looking into over time and trying to confirm exactly where that, that site, that burial site is. And what I really want to know is if this formation that Nazi Germany called Sonderkommando 1005 or Special Detail 1005 came through Kaloshin later in the war. Having realized well after the mass shootings that Nazi Germany itself, having realized that they had left uh, a huge amount of evidence all across Eastern Europe of their crimes, uh, they began to, at least at some level, think about trying to clean up and cover up uh, that criminality. And that meant uh, detailing, often again, Jewish prisoners and their minders to go to different locations where there had been a mass shooting, dig up the bodies, dispose of them in some way, and try to cover up the, the crime itself. So, what I don't know about that site, that depression where I was standing, is one of two things. In a large mass grave, there can be a depression in the ground because the bodies have gone uh, and the, the soil sinks. So a depression is likely to be what you find at the site of one of these things. But that depression can also be caused by Sondo Commando 1005 coming through and digging up that place, disinterring the bodies, disposing of them in some way that usually included burning, and then just not kind of smoothing the earth over again. So the depression probably means that that's the right location, though I'd still like, I'd like to confirm that in every way possible. But right now I don't know why there would be a depression, which one of those two options it would be. Thank you, and we're gonna move on to the second video. This is the backside of the new cemetery in Kalushin, looking toward the church where we are told Jews were held in the church before the mass shooting, it seems logical that they would have been forced down this street. Because if I turn to my left now, this is the same track that enters this empty, now empty area that was the new cemetery. This grove of trees here is where I filmed the earlier, that's where the mass grave, the larger of the two mass graves, is believed to be. So, in this video, the place that I'm standing, um, and what 
I pointed over top of toward the larger of the two mass graves, that area close to the road there might be the location of the second and smaller uh, of the two graves. And I, I'm still pretty comfortable with the idea that they probably forced uh, the victims of this, of this mass shooting down that very road that we were standing next to are under the impression currently that they were held at that church. That's still what I believe. We did also tour that church. Uh, I'm very thankful to uh, a man who was called the whole time. He didn't get his last name. He was called Father Robert the whole time that I spoke with him. An incredibly kind and helpful person uh, and also um, very nervous. He was very worried about telling us anything that might not be the exact truth of the, of the history. And he was actually very new in his post. He'd only been in, in the city of Kalushin for um, maybe about a year. So he was, uh, he was like very sad that the, uh, the main priest or the head priest of that parish was not present because he's been in Kalushin for a very long time. And if, if I had gotten to visit on a different day, I might have gotten to visit with someone who knew a great deal more. But everything that's recorded in that one, I still uh, am on that. I'm following that impression. That seems to be the, the course of events. And uh, personally... Just personally, it was very powerful to stand at the end of that road, which um, even standing at the end of that road, it kind of occurred to me that that was the end of the road for those 1,300 or so people. And to realize that I could just in a logical sense piece back together this gigantic crime that I could see the church steeple from where I was. Again, driving home to me this impression of like how very close all of this was. Uh, this whole idea of secrecy being um, really blown out of the water by making that trip. Uh, to give an audience some backstory on that, when I visited sites where there had been a Nazi mass shooting before, and um, in my career I visited several of them, they were much more uh, hidden or way out of town, or you know, this idea of quote-unquote secrecy held in those other locations that I've seen before. And, and going to Kalashina just didn't. So that was that was very powerful and eye-opening to me. Now I'm at the other end of that street. Here is the church that uh, has at the front there. You can see the Mitseva at the corner of the stairs. This is the other end of the road. Right down this way in this direction is the new Jewish cemetery that became the mass grave. Uh, and some reading showed that this marketplace here may have also been the site of some shooting. So, we are talking about an event that took place in the immediate center of the town. Witnessing does not seem to have been uh, a serious priority problem to them. So I think in this one you can hear me at the end there kind of in real time coming to terms with this idea that witnessing means nothing to the Nazis that, that are committing these crimes, that taking people far out of town is just not their concern. And I'm sort of reconciling what I have long sort of understood as the shorthand of, of Eastern European Holocaust history with this territory that's right in front of my face. In this video there are some things that I'm not entirely sure about anymore. Uh, number one, I really want to confirm this whole story about Jews having been held in the church first. 
before held in the church and then walked down to this mass shooting site. I, there's no reason to doubt that that's the case. It it's just strange to me in that why wouldn't they? You know, they quite often would have held them at their own synagogue, uh, and the synagogue was also quite large. It's actually larger than the church. Um, the Jewish population would have fit in the synagogue easier. Not to say that Nazis cared about anyone's comfort and who would fit where, but de- desecrating the synagogue would have been a bonus to the individuals carrying out that crime. So why not there? That may not even be a, you know, you might be hearing me ask that question and say, what is the necessity of that question? To me, it's just wanting to know the story. So let's just say for a second, um, and it, this is most likely the case, they were held in that very church and marched down that street. That's That all makes sense. What I learned afterwards that really complicates things is that the market that's shown in that video is one of two markets that existed in the town. The other one's gone now. So Jews shot in the market, an absolute fact. That took place. Which market? I don't know. Um, There's a market that was closer to the synagogue. The synagogue is now gone. There's a gas station on top of where it used to be. The gas station is there. The area across the street from that gas station would have been another market-type area, um, which, you know, would have demonstrated that market being the important one. The important part of town is toward the Jewish area. Sort of shows you where the weight of the population was, as I talked about before. So, like, that all makes sense. I just don't know which of the two markets this other shooting took place in. That's maybe something we'll be able to find out later. One thing I want to say about what you can see in that church is that um, when I say uh, there's a matseva present, there's a memorial of sorts to the Holocaust on the front of that church, which is a Jewish gravestone attached to the brick front of that church. There is actually, you know, the, the locals did that. No one made them do that. There wasn't a Jewish community present to do that. Um, I think it's it's interesting to me or it, like quite positive to me that um, those who survived that era, those who survived that area being Polish non-Jewish locals, did kind of recognize this by placing that matseva, that Jewish gravestone, at the front of their church as kind of a, a small, uh, nondescript memorial to this this event. And we did go inside that church, and uh, Father Robert explained best as he could the way it might have looked at the time. A beautiful church, quite well kept, not too long ago refurbished, I imagine. If people were held inside that church, uh, I keep saying if without any without any meaning of uh, doubt to the people who, who believe this, I just want to confirm it uh, as the persnickety historian usually wants to. I just want to know for sure that, that that's what went down. If people were held in that church, they, they may well have fit the, the kind of thing that I learned from, from Father Robert was that pews uh, were are a rather new addition to the church in Kalushin, uh, that all the way up until Vatican II, you just stood the whole service and uh, watched the service in their church. There were there was no seating at all. You just stood in there. Uh, so, even meeting with him in that you know short period that we did um, was was pivotal because otherwise we wouldn't have known that. We'd have said, "Wow, how do you get that many people in here?" And one of the ways that you could have is that there were no pews. It was just a big open space. Here's the church off in this direction. We think one of the synagogues may have been about in this corner and that this small neighborhood back here 
is probably part of the older part of the town and maybe a Jewish area of the town. Okay. So in this video, I definitely say a couple of things that I now know are not true. First off, there was only one synagogue. We got our hands on a map that indicated two Jewish locations. Uh, and we had been talking between ourselves the whole day about uh, it being two synagogues. In reality, it was one synagogue, one mikvah. So there was a mikvah, uh, and the area in that video that I, that I point to is going to be the right spot, but it's going to be the right spot for the mikvah. Uh, it's a Jewish ritual bath, uh, and it's there because it's near uh, the river. They call it a river. It's about two feet wide if you're generous. Uh, so it's a very small stream of water. Uh, and then there's even a um, river there. Used to be the boundary line between Kaloshin and a different municipality, which would have been a really, really, really tiny municipality. It has now been folded into kind of incorporated Kaloshin. All of this is now Kaloshin. Uh, but the, the name of that, um, that place... Is it actually is like Polish for across the water, uh, which just kind of remains hilarious to me because we're talking about across two feet. Uh, I spoke with Ed Goldberg, a uh, person who's very knowledgeable about Kaloshin and has been instrumental in doing research on it and um, with the commemoration of, of Kaloshiners and, and what happened there and, and their lives in the United States. Uh, also, and uh, he referred to it as the area across the river. And when I was in Kalashin, uh, the only thing funny about that day was that I was constantly looking for a river going, I don't know that there's a river. And I had walked over that little stream going, that can't be it. Nobody's going to call that a river. Well, eh, that, is, that is indeed what they call a river. Uh, so that area was uh, where some of the Jewish businesses we're at it's most likely where a leather tannery was at that's also part of how there was a a tefillin factory in Kaloshin. Kaloshiners were known for making the ritual Jewish ritual objects that are so sacred to so many who lived in in pre-war uh, Jewish Poland um, so if you if you see very old tefillin you may actually be looking at a product that came from Kaloshin. Uh, I'd really love to look into that, too. Like, how many did they make? Are there existent examples? Could we maybe see and touch some things that came from this place? Uh, there's a couple period buildings down that road. Um, this is maybe a great opportunity for me to bring up that uh, I didn't get to meet with the incredibly generous mayor of Kaloshin. Uh, generous with his time, that is. I thought maybe we'd sit with him for 10 minutes, maybe glad hand or something. I think we were with him for about an hour and a half. I mean, he's not the mayor of New York City, but he's still got a lot of things to do. So I thought he gave us a lot of time, and that was kind of him. He uh, cleared up what exactly the, the map symbols meant, what was where. He told us about the mikvah. Uh, he told us about exactly where to find the site of the synagogue. Um, he told us about where factories were. He cleared up how there was this other municipality that is now absorbed into Kalashin, the across-the-water municipality that's no longer there. Um, all of this stuff we, we kind of learned from him. And then there was the additional power of the fact that we were sitting in his office in the city hall, which is, of course, on the old Jewish cemetery. So, like, we were visiting with the mayor 
probably in that in that cemetery literally um very great guy and one more uh shout out to why i keep saying we about my whole day in kaloshin is that i was lo- with uh lukash who uh kind of functioned as like my my regional guide and translator the whole day uh lukash had been our helper uh, for the College of Charleston Maymester uh, Tracing the Holocaust Study Abroad. And then I was able to reach out to Lukash and go, look, I've got this one day, I'm going to be able to do research. Can you help me set up appointments with people and drive me out to this little town outside of Warsaw? Uh, can you, can you like be my local fixer? And Lukash was like, oh, you know, you just happen to be lucky I have that day free. Uh, he runs his own touring company uh, called Looney Tours, of all things. And he also has a radio show. He does. Um, So I uh, spent that day with Lukash, and um, we got to go to all of these different places. And when I'm saying we, it's because Lukash and I moved around all of uh, Kaloshin together. He had set up a lot of the pre-site interviews. He arranged our meeting with Father Robert. Uh, he arranged our meeting with uh, the mayor and uh, set up all of that for me. So he's a huge help. He's a he's probably going to be a, a helper we'll come back to all the time as we keep working on this. And maybe he'll be one of our Polish listeners. Maybe. What do you think the significance is of the residents of Kalashin putting the memorial on the church without having it, without there being a Jewish community to guide them in doing that? Yeah. So... I'm uh, I'm kind of I'm I'm really read into the post-war history of Poland and how quite often the Holocaust in many of the locations that it took place in Poland is either not at all memorialized or memorialized in a way that completely shears the event of its Jewish significance. So, like maybe somebody put up a memorial, but they uh, they refer to all of the victims as um, comrades who were killed by fascism. And that's very uh, Soviet language because post-war Poland was in the Soviet orbit and uh, officially atheist, uh, you know. So they would shear victims of their Jewishness and just refer to them as fellow victims of fascism or Hitlerite fascism. Hitlerite is a word often used on inscriptions in Poland. So it's very interesting that they chose something, a metzeva, it's in Hebrew, uh, it's clearly a Jewish ritual object, uh, and and they commemorate with that. Of course, there were many, like all of those stones were probably pulled out of the uh, the cemeteries by the Nazis themselves or the post-war Soviet government. There was a lot of those available. The other part of that is that many communities just choose to move on. They don't commemorate the existence of a mass shooting site in any way or Holocaust events in any way. Um, maybe, this is not to, to cast aspersions where they're not needed, but in pl- some places they are needed. Maybe there's an anti-Semitism in many of these places that moves that goes on post-1945, so they don't commemorate on their own without any prompting. Much of the commemoration work that you can now see if you have the opportunity to travel through Eastern Europe, Poland especially, much of that is the now American resident or Israeli resident um, Jews going back to where they uh, have family ties and erecting a monument of their own. 
So when you find one that was put up by the locals on the accord of the locals, kind of no government push, there's something special to that. I'm not attempting to say with that any value judgment is not making anything better or making anything worse. It's just that, you know, notice that it exists and there's something to that. It's definitely interesting to think of a community without Jews making sure that they are commemorating the Jews that their ancestors might have had a potential hand in murdering. Yeah. Do you think, in looking at Kalashin, does it represent potentially a a good example of a shtetl pre-World War II and during the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. It is in some ways, if I understand your question correctly, it is in some ways a remarkable place and it is in some way a really good example of the whole uh, it's remarkable in that it's, you know, it's not teeny tiny. This is at least 10,000 people, which for some areas of Eastern Europe, that's a metropolis. So in that way, it's not perfectly representative. And it's also not light years from Warsaw, even then. Uh, so it's, it's kind of close to a city. The population differences, Jews being two-thirds, non-Jews being one-third, that that's a good representation of a shtetl right there. Uh, if if that second market that no longer exists today was the center of gravity of the town instead of the one that's closer to the church, that's also a really good representation of a, of a shtetl where life is closer to Judaism than life is close to Christianity, if you will. I don't know. I think that's that's all I, all I really get of where you want to go with that question. Um, in some ways it is, you know, typical muddled answer. Uh, in some ways, it's a great representation of a shtetl, and, and in others, it's it's kind of unique. So what are your hopes for where this research goes, and do you have an idea of what these next steps look like towards it? Uh, only enough to be slightly dangerous. It's so... Uh, I keep pushing the idea that this is really, really early. Um, I'm maybe being overly defensive, but you put something out on a podcast, anyone could listen to it and go, you're not right about this at all. I'm prepared to be wrong about a lot of things at this phase. Uh, which is the fun, it's one of the fun phases of a, of a research process. So what I expect will come out of this is there's the um, Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, JHSSC, uh, meeting is going to be about the topic of Kalushin. There'll be some about what we're working on in that. Uh, we, in that sense, being uh, Professor Ashley Walters, myself, Leah Davenport as uh the research assistant for the Pearlstein Lipov Center and Grace Schaefer as research assistant for the Zucker Goldberg Center. Uh, and then also Natalie Payton as person drug along into this process and made to participate in not only here, but other things. Who does love it, by the way. Awesome. Uh, so we'll all be working on what is this town? Who came to Charleston before World War II? Because that's the most people who live in in Charleston came to here before World War II, uh, formed the Charleston Kalashiner Society uh, and Kalashiner population. Uh, and what was left, what happened in World War II is, is part of my part of this process. And then what was left after World War II, identifying survivors, which has long been thought that there weren't many, uh, but there were a few, and we'll want to highlight those stories. And Looking at how did we, how did we, as in everyone, memorialize um, what had taken place in all of the places that cared? 
Uh, so how did Charleston's Kellosheeners memorialize their community? Um, also, how did Charleston's Kellosheeners and Kellosheeners from other places in the United States and Israel participate in building the monument that now exists in the new cemetery, the location close to the location of the mass grave? Um, how also did um, the Kalushiner Holocaust Memorial that exists inside a graveyard in Staten Island come to exist? I would like to know that. Uh, I've got pictures of that now. I'm kind of curious to try to draw some links. Did Charleston Kalushiners know Staten Island Kalushiners? Did this? Did these two worlds exist after Kalushin without any contact? between each other or what? How did, how did that work? Uh, so all of those things are really interesting to me. And maybe one last thing that I'm realizing uh, I've got a curiosity about uh, before I throw it back to you is long, long, long before there was a memorial in this new cemetery that was also the site of this mass shooting and so much history, long before there was a memorial there uh, erected within your own lifetimes, that field stayed empty. That's not always the case. Like, I'd like to understand how the locals regard that field, the local Poles that still live there today and live there after the war. We would maybe say today they did the right thing by never building on it or turning it into farmland or whatever else. We're very glad, of course, that it remains a, a open memorial space as it is today. But there's absolutely a story to how it didn't get built on and didn't get desecrated all those years after the war. Especially considering Charleston's own history of mm. doing that exact thing. Yeah. How many uh, African-American graveyards got built on in Charleston? Yeah. And in the whole, whole country in general. Absolutely. I think that being in Charleston gives us a unique perspective on looking to memorialization and memory. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think I agree with you're you're talking about what we choose to remember, what we choose not to remember, how we choose to do it, mm -hmm. whose voices we choose to listen to, whose memories we choose to amplify. Yeah. 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 And hopefully through this podcast we will be able to amplify so many voices and so many stories Absolutely. of not only um, survival but of resistance both during and after the war. Well, that looks to be all the time we've got for today. We hope to have you back on very soon, maybe for more than one episode. And yeah, thank you, Dr. Gibbs. Well, thank you for having me. And I additionally want to thank Ellis Librand for composing a beautiful piece for our music. And I also just want to thank all of the listeners, because I think something we talk about a lot is how people view the Holocaust as something that is unimaginable and you can't understand what happened. But today you did your part, you learned, you listened, and you really contributed to the meaning of our project. And of course, if you have any comments, any ideas for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to us. Again, that contact information will be in the episode notes, and hopefully you will be able to access our little web page in order to view the transcript, the videos, the photos, all of it. Thank you. <laughs>